Podglomerate Original. Hello and welcome to The History of Stand-Up, the show where comedian and professor Wayne Fetterman teaches us all a little bit more about the history of stand-up, and I'm your fellow student, Andrew Steven. Today we have something different for you. I'm not the only student. We recorded this episode live at Dynasty Typewriter at the Hayworth Theater in Los Angeles, and we had a great time with comedians Ian Abramson and Dimitri Martin. And we talked about Ian's love of vaudeville and Dimitri's starting in the New York alt scene in the 90s. But really, it was just a conversation about comedy and stand-up in general. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks. Thank you very much. Uh, this is a delight. Thank you, guys. Uh, this is a delight to be performing in front of 12 people <laughs> on a Sunday afternoon. 13. This is There's 13. Okay. And this is Andrew Steven. I'm Wayne Fetterman. Uh, we're going to have a great time. We have a lot to... There's some big announcements we have. First of all, I love that uh, on the marquee out front that... Uh, it just says Dimitri Martin. That's all it says. We're second like third. I am chopped liver. Like I didn't come up with this You're whole professor thing. You're Professor Fetterman. Oh my I just god! Should it's say the professor is. It's here. really. It should have said something. Something. Something in that. Guys, I was in Step Brothers. What do I have to do? What do I have to do? I don't know if you've heard our podcast, but what we've done is we. Okay, so three people have. Um, and it's always good. Four people. Four people. And. Have. Uh, that we basically talk about the history of stand-up from when it was kind of invented in the early part of the century in vaudeville right up to 2018, right up to... So, we're, uh, so we're, we do that, and that's all we talk We don't break down, because there's an old saying, and that is, when you try to dissect comedy, it dies on the operating table. And I kind of believe that. So it's not about breaking down jokes or anything like that. We just talk about what happens. So... Uh, Let's get it started. Well, I just have one quick question, because you are a professor of comedy. Yeah, that's and true. And for this whole podcast, I've sort of been sitting in for the student. Yeah. But now we sort of have more students here. Yeah. Is there a special way when you, uh, when you teach your classes, do you start each uh, class that's a, a good specific question. way? That's a good question. Um, usually, uh, I'm bleary-eyed. <laughs> this is it. This is this whole crazy thing. I don't know if you know this, but we are in a comedy boom right now. You can feel it. <laughs> right this second. You can feel it, right? Right this second. This Comedy is boom. just, it's on fire that this is happening. So, um, so we have, <laughs> so now colleges teach a lot of comedy classes, and we were on our podcast, we talked about there's now three colleges where you can get a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Comedic Arts. Like, you can literally get that. You can, like, that, you can tell your parents, I'm majoring in comedy. And not be going to like a clown college at you know for Ringling Brothers, so it's uh, so it's just weird. It's just very weird what's going on. Well, anyway, let's bring out our guests because <laughs> okay. they're so great, um, and they're coming out together. So uh, one of them is named Ian Abramson, and the other's Dimitri Martin. Let's come on out. Come on out, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. Uh, this is uh, the hoodie show. <laughs> they gave us each a red hoodie. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. Uh, so so that's it. So we're going to start out at the. So we're going to talk about mainly. Well, we'll see what we talk about. But we do have a film clip to show you that's not on YouTube. I know. 
I know. It's not on film either. It's not on film. It's a video, <laughs> video clip to show. Exactly. This would be We're a good design, <laughs> I think, for a trophy. For a comedy and trophy, wouldn't this be a good design? <laughs> Say that again? An wouldn't empty this be a mic good stand? design? Yeah, a small empty mic stand. It's a comedy trophy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um... It should be like one category is the stand and the other is the, the mic, mic, so that if you get both... Yeah, yeah then you get the whole That's thing. Right, yeah. What about the cord? Wait, we're not... Is this video... Is this a... a Video podcast? What no, 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 okay. no. Audio. I'm audio. filming it in the back. It's just for it's your reel. There are yes. video <laughs> podcasts, right? Yes. Yeah, of course there. Of course no, there. This are. is just audio only. Cool. Of course there are. Great. So I just know that the first bit I tried to do with it's not going to be visual. That's, that's not going to work. <laughs> 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 oh, for one. All right, all right. Leave it to the imagination of the listening audience. The history of that bit. Um, all right. So. Uh, that's our show, guys. Thank uh, <laughs> thanks for coming out on an afternoon, on a beautiful day, without any uh, whatever. Well, yeah, I had, a, I had a question for Ian, actually, because yeah. I, I, I realized in preparing for this that we met almost two, year, two years ago to the date. Really? Doing the CISO podcast, which is also where I met Wayne. Whoa. And um, so, yeah. That's a, a great question. It's a <laughs> yeah. But no, uh, on, that we t that's on that is where uh, I discovered that you have a, a love for vaudeville. Now, that's a great question. And Here's vaudeville question. is where we... I'm giving back yeah. yeah. Vaudeville is, is sort of where we began this series. And so I, I was just curious, what, what about vaudeville sort of drew can you I, to it? Can I, yeah. before we even get to that, Ian. Do you have a someone, question? Yeah. But even before how you got into it, how would you describe vaudeville, to, as Good I question. call it, vaudeville, to <laughs> someone who had never heard of it? How would you describe it? Oh, man, what a great question. Thank I you. live to be asked that. I'm <laughs> one of, what, a handful of people that uh, have a deep love for vaudeville. So right. for somebody to just ask me that, I'm just going to relish that for a second. Um, vaudeville was a live type of performance, yes. a precursor to film that had a little bit of everything. It literally means variety. Mm -hmm. So... It would have. It was kind of a, a, a place for you to go to see um, a little bit of everything. You would get maybe a juggler. You would get a beautiful singer. Um, you might get some comedy. People, when we think of vaudeville, we often think of like plate spinners and comedians spraying each other with water. Um, but those were, that was a very small piece <laughs> of what vaudeville was. It was also just like the the place to go for entertainment. Yeah. So this was, and. Just I'm going to add clean entertainment. That was the yes. whole idea behind vaudeville. It was it was something for the whole family. Yes, in most of the circuits, it was it was very clean. That's where I'm, you guys probably talked about it on the podcast. The idea of uh, going blue—that's where that comes from. Tell him, tell him. Okay, so, uh, tell Dimitri because he doesn't know anything I don't about know this. About okay, <laughs> so the biggest. Uh, Initially, like when vaudeville was really getting started, going to the theater was considered uh, perverse because there was dancing and other terrible acts. So you would, um, they, they wanted to clean up this idea so that families could go and you could really, everybody could enjoy it and not feel like they aren't allowed to go to church the next day. So the, the main circuit was, was incredibly strict about what could and could not be said or done on the stage. And if you broke any of those rules, they would fine you and tell you if you do it again, you're kicked off of the circuit. Uh, and they, the, the piece of paper that they would give you was blue. And so that's why, to this day, for some reason, they call it going blue. Oh, wow. Thank you. 
Again, I love phenomenal information, <laughs> interesting to eight people, but that's our podcast. That's my podcast. Nine people. Yeah, so you wouldn't want to get that blue envelope that was like, right. oh, I, I remember uh, Milton Berle saying that he they couldn't even say the word hell. They had to say pecacopter. Or New Jersey. <laughs> Any you, synonym, synonym of no, hell. Yeah. So, yeah, so go, keep going, keep going. Oh God. Okay, so vaudeville. Uh, it what's what's so interesting about it is that the the way it developed is that they became these palaces. The idea of a, a think of like a big luxurious movie theater yep. that's trying to mimic a, um, a vaudeville palace, and in fact, movies started off as a single act inside of a vaudeville show. So you would um, you would come and you would watch the most basic, they called them like magic lanterns um, acts initially, because it would just be like the, the most simplistic version of a moving picture until it would slowly develop. And then the movie became uh, like a, 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 the top billing. And then suddenly there might be a piano act at the top. And then all right. of a sudden vaudeville slowly died. Yeah. And uh, so can we go back to Andrew's question? Yeah, it was so like, just, what, what got you into involved? Because that, in? that doesn't seem like the typical starting place for comedy for most young people. I'm an ageless being, and I started in vaudeville, <laughs> is what it is. Wow. <laughs> um, I, I was studying theater, and um, vaudeville stands out as... Uh, it, there were versions of vaudeville in other parts of the world, certainly the music hall and such in, in England. But like, there's uh, the in I mean, <laughs> vaudeville is a French word, so it's not like um, we invented it. But like <laughs> so many things, we like to take a lot of credit for it. So uh, it was a, a a big part of American entertainment history, and so I just kind of got curious about it. I have always loved the Marx Brothers. I knew that they started in vaudeville. And the m deeper I dove, the more interesting it became because people would spend their entire lives working on a five-minute act. Mm. You can YouTube this, this roller skating act, and these, it's two people, and they would have to set up this circle in the middle of the stage. And the circle is uh, not like the whole stage. It's really just like a small ring so that they could quickly bring it out put it on, they knew it was totally flat, clean, and ready to be skated on. And then they would, just in that small circle, uh, be like spinning each other till like they're lifting each other, putting each other on their shoulders, basically doing flips in the air in a way that is just unreal. It does not look real. And that level of commitment that they would do, they would do that multiple times a night and for their entire lives, they would focus on that five minutes. We won't get to see that again. That won't exist in that same way. Well, I've been doing the same five minutes for many, <laughs> many years. <laughs> know my 99 cents store bits. I've been doing decades have gone by. But why the circle? Why do you bring the circle for the five? I never understand. <laughs> <that>. <laughs> I'm very theatrical. I'm very theatrical. <laughs> The, the last thing I'll say about that is, um, in, in that exact example, is that that was not the premier act. 
Right. That was, yeah, that wasn't a headliner act. Right. Not at all. Because it's five minutes of skating. You're not going to, uh, like, would you pay uh, the price of a movie ticket to go see five minutes of skating? Absolutely not. You know, it sounds cool. It is like, oh, yeah, that's, that's fun. But it's a, such a small piece of what the show was. And in fact, an act like that would sometimes be put at the very end as people were walking out, like the credit sequence, just like, hey, you can stay a little longer, but really right. we expect you to be getting out of here during There this. was another part of vaudeville that I find fascinating, which was something called continuous vaudeville. And that was they'd start the show at noon and go to like 9 o'clock at night. It would be four shows, but it, they would never stop. So it was just... You could sit through it all day. Unreal. Yeah. Or you yeah. Could, could you show up at any time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I had to pay your whatever, 20 yeah, yeah. nickel or something. So uh, was there any vaudeville questions? This is going to be... About oh, what right I over there, yeah. No. Ian said that the, the blue slip, uh -huh. the slip you got when you were fired was blue, yeah. and Wayne, you mentioned a blue envelope. Did the blue slip come in the blue envelope? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. What okay. it actually was, the paper was yellow, and <laughs> the envelope was blue, and that's why it's a green room. <laughs> this is the history of stand-up, guys. Not the history of paper. <laughs> so, uh, thank but you. I do want to know, you had a story that you um, talked with, was it your guidance counselor in college or your, your yeah. professor about you wanted to be a modern-day vaudeville act? And that's the story. <laughs> no, I, I, <laughs> I was doing all this research. No, and no, I, let me finish. <laughs> I was doing research, and we, I w it was in my senior year, and I was um, having to put together like my final project and was pulling a lot of vaudeville research for that, and we were kind of going over, like, what are you going to do with a theater degree after college? And I said, Isn't, aren't you supposed to tell me at this point? <laughs> and I, what I said, I, I was like, you know, I just... I wish that I could write something and perform that thing every night over and over again to try to make it as good as I could, to try to like develop that type of roller skating act. I wish I could just try to get as good as I could at something like that. Uh, and she was just like, vaudeville's gone. It's not gonna come back, you know? Uh, as if this is like a biopic movie <laughs> moment or something. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, what are you going to do? Go ahead and stand up, you comedic person or something. Like, I don't know. You know. Uh, so here's my other question, and it's for either, either you two guys. Um, no. When you, like, for example, let me just say, for example, like George Burns and Gracie Allen, who we, maybe some of you know, maybe some of you don't, they had a very popular vaudeville act that they did the same. It was called Lamb Chops. They did it for years. And it was interesting because now comedians, Dimitri, you can speak to this, have to constantly flip over your act, especially if you do it on a special. And, but at the time, they would hit these, this circuit would take like a year to get back to, I don't know, Omaha or something to play their big vaudeville theater there. And if they didn't do Lamb Chops, people were upset. Wow. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I read or heard about that earlier time when people would maybe develop 10, 20 minutes and could tour on it for 20 years because, I mean, what's, what's the kind of means of disseminating or sharing that act other than seeing it live? I mean, people aren't going to really tell the people in the next town all the bits, so you can just go and... <laughs> do it right, <laughs> right, and or, or they so they would bring their friends back and go. Oh, you got to see, the, yeah, the, you know the roller skating kids. Was 
I was it true? Was Bob Hope? I know he was a radio star first. Did he? I think he started in vaudeville, right? He did, what, but he did was still didn't ex- get successful in vaudeville. He was kind of like a came watch. up in it, mm-hmm. and, and then he got on Broadway. Song and dance man. In Boston, yeah, and then right? he got yeah. on Broadway, and then radio and but pictures. But I, I must have pictures. seen a documentary or again read. I, sometimes you can't tell. You can't remember if you read or saw something, or uh-huh. somebody just told you, depending on, you know, how people talk that you hang out with. They <laughs> yeah, I know. You know they speak in very uh, complete sentences, and they sound like it's part of a book. You're like, oh, my friends are. <laughs> Well spoken, you know. <laughs> pauses every 250 words. It's like a page turn. <laughs> but anyway, I, I think they were saying that this episode of the history of standup is brought to you by Audible.com. <laughs> <laughs> I start every conversation with a table of contents. Yeah. We're going to talk about food, your week, the weather, and yeah. then I'm out. It's good to know. Yeah. So, so, I, but I heard he, um, they, they were saying he was kind of the, the guy who ushered in the modern standup style or the monologue style. He certainly comedy. became the most famous for doing that. Yeah. There was a guy he based his act on that was called Frank Fay, who's a phenomenally interesting guy. Now, in vaudeville, the, pl- the main place you could play, like the peak of it, the biggest place was called what? The Palace. <laughs> Thanks, Ian. Um, <laughs> the Palace in New York. So if you headline the Palace, that was the biggest theater on the Orpheum circuit. In, so the Palace. The, the Palace Theater. <laughs> so wait, were those? It's still there. A Still lot of those theaters were built for that era. No question. Right? They weren't, pre- they weren't earlier. Correct. Right. They weren't right. like later incarnations of an early thing. It's like yeah. They were built as vaudeville houses. Okay. Yeah. Like, uh, like I was just in, at, uh, in uh, Minneapolis, and they have a Pantages theater there that's from 1916. So this is nice. before big films, and they would have vaudeville acts come in. But the main thing, I don't know if you've seen this, but they used to have... Like a kid would come out and put a card and it would say the name of the act. It would say Burns and Allen and Lamb Chops or the skating guy with the circle or whatever the name of that yeah. act was. And then so once in a while they would have a comedian do a monologue. And what happened, this guy, Frank Fay, who turned out to be this crazy Nazi sympathizing yeah. anti-Semite. But besides that, that's not the important part of the story. Great. Jokes were very well structured. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He is kind of known as the father of sort of this brand of Bob Hope style wow. stand-up, where he would just come out in a suit, not in a funny hat and a big tie and a bow. You know, you He's describing the Nazi uniform. Right, <laughs> just a very sharp dresser. So it's interesting, though. So basically, he wasn't a clown. He was... Right. He, he, was, was, he right. was a person. Yeah. Exactly. He so, was not yeah. a clown in any way. And he started emceeing in between. And so instead of the card, he would kibitz with the crowd and yeah. stuff. Wow. And that's and that Bob Hope saw that and was like, oh, interesting. this is an interesting way to where, where I don't have to get seltzer water in my face. You don't need props. Or as they call it, tonic. Is that the same thing? No. Okay, I don't know what water is. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. Okay, maybe not. Um, so, uh, and that's how stand, a lot of people think like Frank Fay is sort of the first of the modern stand. Obviously, there was Will Rogers before that, yeah, and right. even uh, Mark Twain used to tour and do speeches. So, would you consider? I don't know if we consider that stand up. That was more podcasting, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's definitely a precursor to stand up. <laughs> the father of podcasting. He's the father of podcasting. <laughs> I think that's what he's most known for. <laughs> so, uh, so that, yeah, so that's how it all started. And I'm going to say one thing. I don't know if anyone took care of the, uh, our in one 
promo code. But do you see the, this curtain right here? It's kind of hard because this isn't a vaudeville theater. Beautiful but, curtain. Um, it's red. This uh, red curtain. Looks like a curtain. Remember, we were talking about the different for the Ian audience, was talking listening. about the different kind of acts you would see, like an animal act or yeah. acrobat, or maybe even that act that had to set up the thing. So they would close the curtain and set up this circle or whatever, plate spinners, and while that was going on, that was the need for, they needed someone to entertain oh, the crowd in right. front of the, so that was called in one, and so that's how. Why wasn't it called in front? I know. <laughs> I think because it was like one, two, and three. I think stages oh. were set up like that. And so, uh, so that's how, and that's how a lot of comedians like kind of got their start just performing in front of the curtain. They would call it performing in one, and that's what a single is. Yeah, that's, what you, that's what you are. We ended the, the, the final episode of the season with a quote of Bob Hope, Bob Hope saying, I used to perform in one. Yeah. Wow. The, uh, talking about, um, Dimitri was talking about how you would work on these 20 minutes, uh -huh. and uh, two things that set apart both Buster Keaton and the Marx Brothers is that they started to go off the rails uh, that's why they went from like they they went from um, being successful comedians to being the headliners to like you have to buy your tickets months in advance uh, because nobody could follow that type of just total chaos. The but Buster Keaton would tour with his family and it was his dad and his mom and it was like incredibly physical and when he was really small they would throw him into the audience as a child you would get hit with a child that is a fact. <laughs> That is true. I'm not even exaggerating. Right, they mopped the floor with them was one of the best. Yes, right? yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, there were child labor laws uh, set into place because of the Keatons. Um, <laughs> and then when he finally came of age, there was like this press tour about like, the kid's old enough now. Like, yes, we can't throw him, but he'll make you laugh. Well, that's where they get the stand-up term, throwing the baby, if you guys know that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but is that where they got the phrase mopping the floor with someone? Oh, could I'll take be. that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we live in an era of no fact checking or regulations. <laughs> if I only just we had that. some sort of untethered communication device connected to like a worldwide network information. <laughs> That's also oh. full of bullshit. <laughs> So yeah, both the the Marx Brothers and the Keatons were just known for uh, like you you can't follow the Marx Brothers going completely off script, walking off stage for twenty minutes, just like rambling off random jokes and uh, being comfortable enough with the Keatons. It was like hitting each other in the face and like actually being hit in the face, where it was like somehow that's funny. I don't know, but this I was go ahead, sorry. Please, I, I was gonna say this. Maybe this is common knowledge that you guys have covered, but I read a biography of Groucho Marx a couple years ago that was. I thought really good, and they talked about how, uh, I'm not sure where in the Marx Brothers careers they did this, and maybe it was for a lot of it, but they would test, they would take the script out on the road, oh, yeah. which was kind of cool, so they would have a script, before they shot the movie, they would go and just perform sequences, whatever they could, in front of live audiences, and kind of test the movie before it was even made, to see if their bits were working, which was kind of cool, and I also, I read a, a Chaplin biography that was interesting about it's something you wouldn't think of, maybe, but a lot of times when they were shooting, like on La Brea, yeah. you know, the Chaplin stages over there, whatever, whatever it's called. Um, if they Jim Henson. Then now it's Jim Henson, yeah. But I don't know even if there were locations or whatever, but there was no sound. So if the crew was laughing or if anybody, if there was a crowd that kind of gathered, while you're shooting your bits, 
you get a sense. You get a sense. Of it's the like, rhythm of it. It's yeah. kind of like doing live comedy, and if, if someone's taking notes, you're paying attention. You think, hey, that joke really worked. So you kind of it's it seems that in some ways it was less of making comedy in a vacuum than it could be today if you're making a film. Oh, I or, see. Or you're testing after the yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back then it was still. I think the Marx Brothers would go to those vaudeville houses, and and have live audiences tell them, oh yeah, that that guy's you know that's gonna work. That's interesting. Yeah, and the the Marx Brothers are a perfect example of kind of what we were talking about of like you had to be kind of a clown character. Even yeah. though Groucho was very verbal, it was still this right. you know, crazy thing with the well, mustache. Well, he wasn't playing himself. It wasn't, yeah. It wasn't just a guy in a suit or a hoodie or something like that. <laughs> and then, obviously, uh, you know, there Harpo, roots of all those characters are actually archetypes. <laughs> yes, when Rachel, uh, go like, ahead. Groucho was a Southern gentleman. Uh, Harpo was like an Irish. The Irish. Yeah. yeah, and Chico was uh, Italian. was Italian. Yeah. yeah. And I mean that sort of thing is very common and uh, uncomfortable uh, where you, when you extend that out. Well, but here's the here's a question for the panel here's, and for the audience: <laughs> is I feel like that happened, and then it then the comedy became very much about assimilation, like all the Jewish comedians, like uh, you know Jack Benny's. That's not his real name, but, you know. It was uh, Moshe Benny. Yeah, it was something <laughs> super Jewy. Ben Kabluski or something like that. And Mendel Berling or was Mel Merle yeah. and that kind of stuff. So they were all trying to be very Protestanty. And now yeah. I feel like in a way, stand-up comedy is very much now embracing your ethnic identity as your the tent pole which you build your act around. What do you think? Yeah. More so than when I was growing up. Mm, yeah. Not just yeah. Uh, just whatever makes you you. Well, this is not quite related, but uh, yeah. similarly, I remember learning about, uh, as we're four white guys sitting on stage yeah. here, but <laughs> in terms of the male gaze as stand-up has evolved, the things that a lot of these earlier comedians, early comedians were doing, which was, you know, you're trying to be a clown or you were a clown or a certain archetype. Mm -hmm. For women, it, it seems that the male gaze is so strong and so kind of non-inviting on the stage that only until, I mean, maybe you have covered this in other episodes, but it was much later where women could be stand-up performers without being one of those archetypes. When you think of Phyllis Diller and some of the early, right? You're at least she television. was more of a, cl like a yes, clown they were, they were. Yeah. they had to kind of be a clown or. Right, or, right. Am I wrong about that? Well, there was one exception to that. There was a, in the, in the late 40s and 50s, Jean Carroll, and then she ended up retiring. But yeah, 100% true. You had to be like outraged until like Joan Rivers came along, maybe, <coughs> or something like right. that. What do you yeah. think? I think uh, it's definitely always been that uh, same kind of struggle. They have an extra layer uh, that they're having to speak to uh, where it's like, yeah, am I too sexual? Am I not sexual enough? Do I try to be totally just pristine, or do I lean into it like Mae West? You know, right, uh, right. but then uh, Steve Allen, who started the Tonight Show, his mom was a vaudeville performer, and she was known for singing, and she was very funny. But she also had to be a singer, and she went the like very traditional, like I can't be too. It's like a totally different mm -hmm. balancing act for a woman in that time than. Well, there a was man. also a very big star called Fanny Bryce, and right. she, but she ended up having to do like a baby character. Whoa. It's true. It's, it was called Baby Snooks. Is that right? 
Are there any women in the audience <laughs> to speak to this? But just seriously, just, just fourteen. Fan, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm Mom, Mom's Maybelline. That's another yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, big time. Act. But she had to pretend to be yeah. an older woman. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about the gaze. I'm not too familiar with it, but I'm nearsighted. <laughs> I'm nearsighted. You mean so it's really G A Z E. Yep, that sounded like you, you just apologized it, it for like homosexuality. You're about the gay community. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why I got quiet. Yeah, we, we, we all, all kind of got I mean, scared. You did bring up Frank Faye earlier, so that, that was a well, unsettling uh, moment. Quite a left turn you're taking for the <laughs> <Yeah>. podcast. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you went. I, I say, "Mom's Mabley," and then you say, "Sorry for the gays." <laughs> Did Man. you hear Wayne Fetterman apologizing <laughs> for gay people? I don't know if that was who wow. that was for. <laughs> that is true. That is that's what happened. I can't take it back. Um, I cannot take it back. I love it. And that's the end of our podcast. No, that's so uh, not this episode. The podcast. So. Before we, <laughs> and that's the end of my career. Uh, <laughs> that well, just went out on Twitter. And <laughs> Wait, uh, if there's any, for me, if there's a thread personally yeah. to w the vaudeville days or hearing about it, aside from doing the road, and sometimes like I've been in places, I think when I was in Kalamazoo once in Michigan, they said the Three Stooges performed on this stage and all mm -hmm. stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's pretty exciting because in a lot of ways, um, stand-up comedy, is, as we understand it, isn't that old, right? Certainly film comedy isn't that old in the grand scheme of comedy. Of course, of course. Um, I forgot what I was going to say here, but there was something about, <laughs> oh, this. The idea, when I heard, when somebody told me in a conversation, wherever again, in a book, I, I, I have trouble figuring out what, where I am usually <laughs> with my mind, but um, that you could tour for 20 years with the same 20 minutes. I think most of us wouldn't want to for a lot of reasons. Performers in the audience, maybe you think, wow, that, I, that would drive me crazy, I think, after a while, and I'd probably want to come up with something new. But the idea that you could is so strange and alien different, weird, I think, to my understanding. But I started in 97, so even in the time that I've been doing it, it has changed so much because of technology, which I'm guessing is a recurring theme on the podcast. Yes, it is. Yes, but, it is. But not that I could do 20 minutes for that long a time when I started, but there certainly were no camera phones, and it was much harder to record a comic mm -hmm. um, and for people to share your material with someone else. And as a one-liner comic... Especially, uh, it feels like with Twitter, people will tweet from my show. Like, I'll do a joke for the first time, and then it's on Twitter. Now, I'm, I've learned nobody cares. They're, you know, they're not looking for my jokes out there so much. But, <laughs> but, it's, but it still gets in your head. Yeah. And, and it's hard. And I do think it changes the ecosystem and the way comics come up. Because I think it, it can force you or guide you into a more spontaneous kind of regenerative well of, of material and style rather than just working on your jokes and having them. Because they get devoured. They just get taken. Right. Well, can, uh, let's transition now from, if we can, not that we'd have to stop talking about vaudeville, about I'm very interested because I was living out here in Los Angeles when the alternative comedy scene started in the early 90s. Mm. And, then, and I heard about it in New York, and you were right at the epicenter of that. Yes, kind of, but... Um, yeah, 90s. I was 97, so right. it was there. I got to start in, I think, a kind of landscape where that existed. Well, I remember in 1996, the New York Times wrote... Uh, now, by the way, in the early 90s, Catch a Rising Star, which was incredible, big club, started in 72, closed in 93. 
the original improv in New York, right. where it all started, the first comedy club. That had closed. Because so this like, was the bust, right? As there was I a bust. Yeah, as there I was understand a it, because stand-up ended up on TV. I'm partly responsible. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but Some say entirely responsible. What? Who said I'm entirely Because it's really cheap to produce. Yeah, yeah. Right? And just the way comedy clubs work, too. It's like brick wall, microphone. The, comedies, the comics are bringing in their own material. Right. You're not writing for them. You don't have to have staff of writers. Point the camera, shoot it. Make sure it's clean. Five minutes sets. Easy to cut it up. Boom, it's on TV. People can now see it on TV. Cable's proliferating, so now it's on HBO, Young yep. Comedian Specials, MTV Half Hour right. Comedy, et cetera, et cetera. So then it's like, okay, well, we don't have to go see it live. That was part of it. And also, I think Comedy Club started, like, it became a little, and we talked about this on the podcast, but I just feel like it became a little, like, rote and, like, in a way, kind of like the most basic comedians would just have these killer sets. And someone like Janine, who is known for right. starting this, was just like, I, I can't follow this. You know, I yeah. can't follow this guy doing, you know, well, here's, kids on milk carton bits. Here's what was always interesting to me. as So I started in 97. Now, I, I went to law school for two years before I was a comic. So I was in New York City, not knowing that I would do stand-up comedy, thinking I was going to be a lawyer. But I was at NYU Law School there. So it's um, a, it's across the street from the cellar. Yep. Comedy cellar's... Well, or kind of, yeah, catty corner it's or whatever. It's, it's right and it was directly... the map. Yeah, it's directly across from the Boston Comedy Club, which is now long gone. Yep. Which was, a, which was on West 3rd Street there. But um, I wanted to... When I thought, oh, I'm going to try comedy, you know, I, I went and saw a little bit of comedy. I went to... Somebody told me about Luna Lounge, which this is, is a big this room. This, this is was exactly on the Lower East Side in yep. New York. Is anybody in the audience... On Ludlow Street, if I'm not on mistaken. On Ludlow Street. Anybody familiar with these places? This Oh, okay, cool. So this is not this is not going to be surprising, or this is, but maybe listeners out no, there. No, it is. Yeah, this is great. So this was a cool room. So, so I was in law school, and a friend of mine said, "Oh, my friend knows of this room. If you want to go to this comedy show, I said oh, I've never seen. I had seen one live comedy show ever, and I went to this one, and it was just couches in the in the back yep. room of this bar, and the Louis was on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marin, I think, did a set. Yeah." Uh, Bobby Tisdale, if people know him, Maureen Cassidy, who I don't know if she performs anymore, but anyway, and there were maybe a couple other acts. So it was really interesting because I there were no microphones. This was part of the thing, and there were just couches and recliners, like old furniture that they had found, and it was it seemed really. And this is ninety seven, ninety six, I think, 96. before I started. Well, this is interesting. You should bring up ninety six because the New York Times again. I said those yeah. big clubs closed. In 96, they talk about this scene. There's a whole article in the New York Times, and they say that Luna Lounge is the best place to see stand-up in New York. Wow. Like, that's how much people were gravitating to this, what we call alternative scene, which was like, just commit, you know, just getting, stripping yeah. away the two drinks and the cheese sticks and the... Well, this is what was funny to me I years don't know later. if sticks is the right word, but it's... It's shtick. <laughs> cheese <laughs> shtick. It's cheese sh- sticks. Right, so that was that was my improv group. Cheese sticks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's short lived. Short lived. Short lived. But uh, <laughs> so yeah. So for a guy like me, I so that's started your first club you no, ever. No, no. So, so I started the Boston Comedy Club, oh, which okay. is a comedy club. Barking. Right. I did the the Bringer Nights, the New Talent. Whatever. Did you have to do that? I never was in New York. I, oh, in okay. Chicago, there there aren't. Was there, there any barking? Was there any barking? No. 
Because I know Sarah said she had a bark also. Did she? Yeah. So that's barking, what something we, I never had to do. For any listeners who don't know, barking is tell us trying <laughs> to hustle people into the show, <laughs> getting right, trying to get people to buy tickets or to come in off the street. And so for me, it was, hey, we'll we'll let you. Well, I'll give you five minutes if you bark for the whole show. Love and so it. So what happened is I show up at the beginning of the show, bark for three hours or whatever, and then I would get on stage at midnight or you know 11:45, however late the show went. They're like, okay, you can go up. And by the time you get on, it's a specific kind of heartbreak <laughs> that you've never experienced before because you see a full house. Yes, yeah. And you're like, great. And then it just slowly shrinks and fewer and fewer people. And by that time you get the room, there's four people, there's three people, someone who fell asleep. It's like, oh, that guy's not even awake. I didn't know that. That doesn't even count. <laughs> that guy's here. But um, Did you have to sell a certain amount to be able to get that five minutes? No, not the, the way. You just had to put the time my, in. My thing, yeah, was yeah. And then I, but before that was bringer shows. Which oh, you did that? Oh, yeah, I had to do that. Tell me, tell them what that is. The Bringer Show is, great, you're booked for the new talent showcase on Monday night at the Boston Comedy Club of, you know, in two weeks or whatever. All you have to do is bring, you know, four paying friends. Uh, they, buy, they have to buy two drink, you know, two drink minimum, cover charge, and then you can do your six minutes or six friends or whatever the thing was. So this is the worst... This is the worst because I love it. I, love I heard it. Seinfeld said this once, which I'm going to paraphrase. Which right. is he said, with stand up, it's so tricky because it's the hardest when you're the worst, hmm. and it's the easiest when you're the best. This, again, I'm paraphrasing, but what, what it just stayed with me because the idea was when you s really suck is when you ha usually have the hardest crowds. It's in the beginning, in really tough rooms, going on really late. Nobody n has any idea of your thing, who you are. They don't care, <laughs> you know, and. So how do you and you're the worst at it. So it's like you're having this the toughest kind of arena to do it in. But then by the time you get to Seinfeld's level, if you ever get there, right, you're mm -hmm. in these really beautiful theaters often. People have paid a lot of money to see you. They're excited. They're predisposed. Yeah, they're fans. They, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, this is the I, big question, and this goes to Ian as well. Like at that time when you're starting and you don't know if you're good or you're bad and it's almost impossible it's almost impossible to tell because these are the worst crowds you're ever going to Oh, and that's what for. I was going to say. Is also your, you, the bringer show then is, makes it even worse because you're asking your friends <laughs> to pay to come see you. <laughs> when you don't even know what you're doing, you suck. And that's when you don't want your friends to see you. I, for, I still don't want friends to see me. I, I, I like strangers. You know what I mean? Whatever are you happens. Asking the same like, friends for the most. Well, you shows. run out of them. I yeah. ran out of friends so fast. It just, it just blew through. So then you're eating shit in front of your friends. But you learn, I'm sure we've all had this experience, you learn about the language of the comedy experience um, before, during, after the show, and how to read people and, and what things really mean, you know? Like after the show, when you know you, know you did poorly, your friends know you bombed, mm. you invited them, they <laughs> paid, they bought drinks, and now you're, you have to see them, unless you just you took off. To, you have but to, But you have, you can't just run away, which I'd wanna do. <laughs> So now they had, now now you have to do the receiving line at a oh, weird that's so great. for a that's weird so serp. Yeah, yeah. Look, the one I always liked was looked like you had a lot of fun up there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which of course is not true. Yeah, <laughs> but it's like they're like I don't want to lie to him. Like what do I say? Like, <sighs> yeah, there's wow. nothing. That's one of the most painful things of starting out is is the polite encouragement of an audience. Yeah. <laughs> Where it's like they they're just like. The whole thing's so fucked because it's n I've I've never encountered an audience that doesn't want to laugh and have a good time. Yeah. They paid money. They gave you their attention. It's like you've let them down so much. 
Wait, you've <laughs> never had just a horrible crowd that was just like definitely. But but I never. I don't think that they all got together and said. Let's be hey, let's go have a shitty time. Oh, I say, I say, I say. Let's not they laugh at anybody. Let's go fucking waste our hour in there. You know what I mean? I, but yeah, I've had tons of shitty crowds. I just never think that they got into it. Like, oh, I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. They probably have a very different idea of what they want to laugh at, but you can't give it to them. That yeah. is like the most frustrating thing. They want to talk about dating. I can't talk about dating. Yeah. There's nothing to say about dating that I have. Over there's the, other comedians. Yeah, but over the years, the things that I've found the most enjoyable... And it's not even shot him for anything. It's yeah. just there's something that for me. There's nothing funnier than seeing one of your friends eat shit on stage, <laughs> <laughs> but not on an important show. I'm not saying it's right, a guy right. on you know Colbert or something yeah, and yeah, the yeah, poor yeah. guy bomb. I'm saying you're doing a gig together, and you just know before you get on stage. Often you just know. It's I always say it's like being strapped to a, a chair or a vehicle, and it's moving towards a wall. Like a brick wall. Like you're getting driven into a wall right. and there's nothing you can do. You can't, there's no brakes. You can't get out of the straps. Like all you can do is just take the collision. And that's what shows, or like somebody punching you in the face and the fist is coming for a while. But it's like if someone was punching you, but they made a fist like across the street and they're like slowly walking you up to you. And you're like, I can't, I don't know why, but I can't move. I know I'm getting punched in the face. So that when you see a friend, do you know what I mean? It's like, that's great. It's just very funny it's to me. It's a slow-mo, I know. It's the futility of it is hilarious to me. Where it's just like, I've been on benefit shows or whatever, and you're like, I have to do the set. I'm not getting out of it, and I'm, I'm going to die. And it's like, and you die, you know? All right, I have another question. <laughs> I have another question for you, Dimitri. And uh, yes. I know you do. What's considered sort of one-liner, non-sequitur. Yeah, and I is guess that true? Yeah, I, I always think of it that way, but maybe they, the bits have gotten longer now. Yeah, but yeah, yes. lately. I will like say, when I started doing comedy, I found my old notebooks, the first things I ever wrote, uh -huh. some of them, and I could see me, my approach to comedy, and it was S colon, P colon, which was set up, punch. Yeah. So I was obsessed with the economy of words. So what's the fewest words I can have in the setup and the fewest words in the punchline? So for me, it was always puzzles, like even from the beginning, rather than, hey, I'm a funny guy, and let me tell you, I hooked up, you know, hooked up with this chick, and like, hey, I'm great. You know. Did you ever get it? <laughs> <laughs> for me, it was like, okay, if a man were in a rowboat, consider this. You know, it was always kind of like... <laughs> <laughs> what is the punchline there? you yeah. got to tell us. Because I love Stephen Wright, which I've said in many interviews over yeah. the years when people ask me, Stephen Wright was my... Kind of first person. Did you I saw. see him on the Tonight Show, or how did you see him? No, probably on an HBO special or right. a, a Young Comedians thing, or or something like that. Probably. Did you ever have a one-word setup and punchline? One word setup and punchline. Um, I don't think so. I think the shortest I've done is four words or something like that. And I don't know if it's not like some killer joke, whatever. But baby shoes for sale. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Very Hemingway. <laughs> <laughs> But, but what I was going to say is what's interesting to me is now I'm 21 years in. Yeah. Um, my, where you start, it's just funny how much, how hard it is to transcend or get out of the bubble that you started in. Of course, the time that you started in and the place. Mm -hmm. Because my understanding of comedy, what was real comedy, yeah. was to me it seems now more like 80s style New York comedy. Even though it was the 90s, yeah, yeah. The the idea of comedy clubs and the brick wall, it's funny how much ownership people who do that kind of comedy when I started, how much ownership over comedy they 
claimed. Oh, interesting. Just yep. to me, how obnoxious it is to call what some of my friends were doing, what I was doing, alternative comedy. Only later did I learn yeah. that a lot of the supposed alternative comedy predated nope. yeah. the 80s club comedy, but these guys, what I call tough guy comedy, yep. which became tough crowd and stuff, and I hung out with all those guys. I always hung out at the cellar and stuff. Did you do tough crowd? Was it still? They asked me to, and I... I turned I it down. I did. I wisely, I think, turned it down. Yeah. Um, it's just not my... <laughs> my impression of tough crowd, if you don't know the show back then on Comedy Central, was... So what's going on in Iraq? Shut up, you're fat. Nice shirt. It's <laughs> just like, what the fuck? And it's like, wow, you really zinged him on his shirt. Wow, that's some hard-hitting tough guy comedy. Wow, very, very sharp. I'm impressed. Yes, sign me up. Let's make fun of my nose on Tough Crowd. You know what I mean? Whatever. It's just kinda... But anyway, so it's funny that these guys would kind of give me shit. Yeah. Probably less to my face and more when I wasn't around. And yeah. a lot of my friends, number one, I wanted club spots. You did. Couldn't get them. I was taken off a benefit show once at Gotham. The booker called me. Yeah. So a benefit show is like you're not even in the regular club rotation. Like some charity rented the room. So it's like you're not subject to the regular booking rules. Because right, okay. it's like, all right, they own the room for the night. And I got taken off even a benefit show there. The guy called me. He's like, you're too cerebral and low energy. We don't have room for you. <laughs> Cerebral and low yes, energy. Too cerebral and low energy. That's why I think Todd Barry, you know, years ago had his album called Medium Energy. Yeah, right. Because Todd, <laughs> me, Todd, there were a bunch of comics who yeah. were, you got branded, you're low energy. This is like a curse in New York at the time. It's like, oh, he's low energy. You know, we can't, he can't open the show, can't close the show. You know, it's like, oh, where do you put him? He's low energy. <laughs> it's like, anywhere, it's fine. Just put me, you know. But anyway, so that late, years later, I developed a chip on my shoulder in retrospect where I was like, you c you're calling this alternative. I understand why, but right. it's kind of obnoxious that it's like, no, you guys are doing 80s New York comedies. Like, that's so not. Did you? F I'll, this I'd never heard. So you felt like a little like you didn't want the alternative label. You're just like, I'm just a comedian. In a way, yeah, because I, it was it was pejorative and it was like ghettoizing the those of us who kind of weren't getting stage time in the clubs, or they would shit on Janine like. Um, she doesn't have punchlines, or like you're bringing your notes on stage, like as if this was the thing. Right. Um, but it's just funny to me because you're, you're, you're kind of coming up in this box and you don't realize it. Where it's like, okay, I got it. You, you can't have a ukulele on stage and you can't do drawings and you can't juggle and you can't do whatever because. Those are all know. things you did. No, I did uh, one <laughs> of those. You said my I did one of those three. I figured if I gave three examples, I'd put mine in the middle. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> Um, but yeah, well, actually, I might have done ukulele. I might have tried that too. <laughs> I've done ukulele, and I juggled, but not in com not in comedy. That was that predated comedy. Just the drama. More dramatic. Uh, no, I was in the anti gravity society. It was called in college. That's right. Thank you. All right, you. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why you're considered cerebral. <laughs> it's weird. It's I weird. didn't name it. Um, but but I guess look, my rant, if if this is a rant or whatever, I'm going off on it is just that it, it's at the time. I guess my point is, it's hard to know. If you don't know your history, I guess. I just thought, this is comedy. Yes, I get it, you know? I watched comedy on TV in the 80s as a kid, and my understanding of comedy was, this next guy, and a guy comes out on a blazer, and he's got the microphone, pulls it out of the stand, puts the stand off <laughs> to the side, he's like, oh, God, the taxis, man, they smell, right? You know, whatever. <laughs> and then it's like, good night. But then later, you kind of think about it a little more maybe cynically or economically, and yeah. it's like, oh, I get it. You're producing comedy shows. You're just making as much money as you can from your audiences, paying as little as you can to your performers, 
with the smallest overhead possible. So why on earth would you have a show that's more like vaudeville that accommodates right. all these other kinds of acts and can and accommodate music and whatever else people want to do? No, you set the rules and you say, there's a microphone and that's all you can use and I want it to be four minutes. If it's for TV, I want it to be four minutes and yeah. clean and that's it. So it's those constraints, I think great comedy can come out of it, but it's funny to call the other stuff alternative. It's almost like that was an alternative or that's a small piece of something right, that's that was larger. Yeah, that was yeah. just the trend that was going on then. I think, and we talked about alternative comedy a lot, is, and I have just a completely different view. I know you think of it as like, oh, like a put down and you're ghettoized and you're not really, you can't really play a club or something. I looked at it the other way. I looked at it like, oh, this is really interesting and re expansive as far as material. For sure, I was totally like, drawn I to was it. I've I was totally thrilled to that. be involved with that scene at all. No, I was too. I think for me, maybe I, in a way, I was lucky because I got to do both. Because I did get up at some of the clubs. I would do the comic strip. A lot of the spots were late night and kind of mm -hmm. tough. But for for me personally, I love jokes. I love one-liners. In a lot of ways, that's one of the most old-fashioned ways to do comedy. They're just jokes. It's just like. But then I would just like to do them in different ways. Let me ask you. What, let me ask you a question about one-liners. Do you believe? And this is just philosophical, that your joke taken out could be used by other comedians, or do you feel you bring a certain, it's filtered through Dimitri? It's uh, I, I, I think both. I think it's kind of case by case, and I'm trying to learn how to have mm -hmm. it be more of the latter. You want more that's specific to you? Here, here's something that really stuck with me. About five years ago, I think, I, I read an article, or somebody told it to me, or it was in a book, <laughs> or it was a daydream. <laughs> I just you know where it. you are right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, but I know this exists, and you can find it on the internet. Right. And um, maybe you know this story, but it was these archaeologists. We t I think we talked about this, Ian, when we worked together. I, th I remember telling this to you and Matt Donaher. Maybe we were hanging yeah. out. Okay. They found um, basically a joke book from ancient Greece. What? Or from Rome, but it was in Greek. It's uh -huh. from the ancient world. This yeah. is real. They found a joke, what's essentially a joke book, and they translated it. That's how they knew it was a joke book. Uh, and it was <laughs> jokes. <laughs> it was jokes. They were jokes, and they were actual, like, hard jokes. And they said the jokes were... Um, they were fart jokes, ugly wife jokes, slave jokes... Because there were slaves in ancient Greece, and of course. you know, okay. and uh, fat jokes, and I think blind jokes. From t over two thousand, we're talking, however, over two thousand years ago, right? And they had some of the jokes in the article, and so I remembered. I only remember one of them, but you can find the jokes. Is it the fart? No, it's I a guy sells a slave to another guy. Yep, hilarious. Yeah, so. <laughs> The slave dies. The buyer then goes to the seller and says, we have a problem. The slave you sold me died. And the seller says, that's crazy. He never did anything like that when he worked for me. <laughs> <laughs> that's from over 2,000 years ago. <laughs> Fucking incredible. That is incredible. So that, to me, was inspiring. I could just see the guy shrugging. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I, I found that I found that inspiring and humbling. Yeah, and it was also kind of exciting. And then the article made a really interesting point, which is they said, "This is the dead parrot sketch. 
2,000 years before Python did it. <laughs> oh. In a way. <laughs> they yeah, stole yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah, what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So course, then it, it, it kind of bring it unearths all those ideas of like parallel thought and what's original and, mm -hmm. and every, what's been done and what hasn't been done. So when I started, I would get more upset if I had a similar premise to somebody or you know, I became more worried about this idea that I love jokes. I love the ideas themselves. And I don't, right. it doesn't have to be about me, but it's my perspective. So if someone else could do my joke, at the same time, that ended up being upsetting because I'm like, oh, I want it to kind of be my joke, you know? Right. So, so now I'm, I've kind of come to peace. I'm at peace with that idea that, you know, you're going to think of things other people think of, but I still try to make it more personal. But then I think of that, you know, 2,000 years ago. That's I love an amazing Python. Joke. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To, th to say one thing on that is... Uh, <clears throat> maybe somebody would be able to tell one of your jokes, but if you read on paper 10 of your jokes, it would be so clearly you. Yeah. Any of your 10 jokes, it would be so, it, they would add up to something that is so clearly you and your voice. Yeah, I think so. I think there's a, a kind of comedy fingerprint. Maybe this is for any artist, people who make things. It's hard to not be yourself when you multiply it over time. Like repeated trials. I just think if you paint like someone else, if you draw like someone else, you're trying to sing like someone else. If you had a, if you just did it for a year or for 20 shows or something, I think you could kind of fake it and get away with it and not be you. Yeah. When you're 10 years in, 15, 20, I, I think it's really hard to not be you after 20 or 30 years or whatever it is, you know? Well, can we, I'm going to show this clip now because this is, now I know that it does kind of tie in a little, and again, if there's any questions or any, I mean, I guess not. Um, okay. <laughs> This is uh, a clip of Should Milton Berle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is going to be a clip of Milton Berle um, talking to Albert Brooks, oh. and in 1974. So this is. I'm excited. What is this? 44 years ago. Am I doing that right? Um, uh, 44 years ago, and uh, just talking about the difference between an old timey. Now Milton Berle was in vaudeville. He was an MC, Frank Faye style. <laughs> Uh, and then obviously became this huge television star in the late 40s, early 50s. And this is Albert Brooks, who's in his 20s, and just talking about how comedy changes. Well, you know, is there I mean, a different so. style of, to the jokes that are told by the young comedians? Well, I think that possibly if there is any major difference, I think jokes, per se, stories about unrelated characters, these two men walked into a bar, are probably disappearing. I don't want to be the, the one to have to break that to you. Uh, no. <laughs> um, I think that uh, it's, it seems that uh, it seems that people uh, that comedians are really taking from their own lives more. You, you don't believe in one-liners, do you? Um, I really don't travel by boat at any no, time. No, I'm not. <laughs> group of comedians, shall we say, from the ages of, oh... 16? Um, 60. <laughs> 60 to 70. People that have been doing this for a long time that are still successful at it because they still have an audience. But eventually, that leaves and something new comes along. And then eventually I'll be 60, hopefully, and there'll be someone new uh, come along. Or hopefully there then won't you've, be. Then you believe that the styles will change. <laughs> Well, of course, everything changes. Have you seen the new Ford? <laughs> you are asking me, what, what you are asking me is w about today, let's say people that are starting today. It would be very difficult for someone to start today by copying 
Jack Benny or Henny Youngman. That's the way we all started in the early Bob days. Post. Well, that's the way we all started in the early days. I, we had to put somebody up on a on yeah, a, on but, a but but also, but those were days before television and before everybody got to see those people. I mean, you could take. I'm not saying this personally, Milton, but you could take someone some someone's vaudeville act verbatim. Always right, and, <laughs> and use it, and 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 you could travel around di different sections of the country. But people are exposed so fast, and and the, and the medium eats up people so fast that you that you have to have something new to offer, or oh, I think true, you're going to be. Uh, well, you're, you're gonna, the new breed, normal. and you're, you're terrific. Uh, one more question. Today's media seems to, they seem to touch on subjects that the audience can uh, sort of identify with. It has been said, and I guess it's true, you write your own material? Yes, I, I do. Everything that you've done? So far, everything I've done, yeah. Well, I think uh, writing your own material is a great thing, and it, it's terrific. I don't write my own material. I heard. I heard. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> what do you think about that? Just, I love it. Now, Dimitri, did you think that was a book we were just listening to? <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was interesting just in, again, this is 20, 20, yeah. 30 years before you even, no, 20, 40 years before you started. They were, you know, and Milton's always like trying to figure out what these. Here, here's what's awesome about this. Yeah. I, I know Albert, not too well. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's but he's. He's one of my favorites. He's one of the few people that I was just a huge fan of that I then got to meet. And when they Have say, you seen that clip? No, okay. I've never seen it. And when they say never meet your heroes and all that stuff, you know, it seems like a lot of the times that's probably good advice, but sometimes you get lucky and you meet somebody whose work you love, and then the person is great and funny and delightful. And, um, you know, I, I love Albert. I don't know him very well, but I've been able to talk to him a few times. And I think he's one of the all-time funny people from you know, our era, gener I mean, before our generation stuff. But um, I was talking to him once because I was upset because somebody did one of my jokes. Sometimes I see my jokes. People will do my jokes, mm -hmm. whether they know they're doing it or not. It happens to other people. But like, I have this old joke that glitter is the herpes of craft supplies. <laughs> That's kind of the the whole thing. I'm not going to do the whole joke, but whatever. But I've seen people. Four, maybe four times now, just like on talk shows, right. actors and stuff. They're just like, yeah, what are they? One of them, somebody said, what do they say? You know, you know what they say, glitters are her. I'm like, I'm watching it, I'm like, that's what I say. That's not what they say. I wrote that. That's my joke, asshole, you know? But I remember I, it was either that or something I was telling Albert, and he was like, he said, you know, he, he, he doesn't matter. He said, his kids were teenagers when I met him, and he said, my. My uh, kids or my daughter, one of his kids showed him a clip of somebody doing a bit, that a comic they like. I don't know who it was. And it's a young comic. But the, the gist of it was the guy was reading a Dear John letter or something yeah. on stage. And his kids thought it was hilarious and it was this new thing. And he said, I did almost the exact same bit in 1970, whatever. He said, I saw it. And he goes, you realize there's like six jokes. It's how you do it. It's what like all been done. slave joke. Yeah, exactly. It's all <laughs> and then um, I remember uh, Jordan Rubin told me a really funny thing. Jordan's a com. Was I think he's still the stand. I'm sure if he's 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 writing and directing. Yeah. Um, I'm paraphrasing, and I don't think I'm getting anybody in trouble here. But it's like when I was coming up in New York, Attell, who's still kind of, I think the king of New York. When I go back, he's still doing the cellar. Dave Attell. He's so funny, prolific. So many comics were influenced by him. So many 
when Dave would go on stage at the cellar, usually at midnight, comics, everybody hanging upstairs, they'd come downstairs. No question. So and if I can recommend his album, it's called Skanks for the Memories. Great, yeah. Am I right? right? It's that one is, of the yeah. great, it's right. incredible. But it's like, Dave was like kind of a wizard. He, he just would not only have jokes that worked, but he'd have a new joke, and then you'd see him do it on a Monday night or something, and then maybe pop in Wednesday, he's on stage, and he's, the joke worked. It's working, he's got it. But he's restless, and he's just reworking it, just doing a different version of the same premise. But in a way that you can't do both. You know what I mean? It's like, it's either this one or that. But he'd keep, he would do on one idea, like six or seven, you'd see him do six or seven great jokes. For me, if I get a, one that works, I'm like, cool, got it, done. I'm not going to change the words. Lock I'm glad it, it works. Yeah, yeah. But Dave was just kind of sculpting or something. I don't know, whatever he's doing up there. It was really cool. And um, Jordan Rubin was friends with him and with Chappelle. And Chappelle started, from what I understand, when he was 14. Chappelle, yeah, yeah. Chappelle was, was like kind of a prodigy in a way. He, he was doing clubs as a teenager. And if you think about going to a comedy club or something and seeing a teenager up there, there are funny teenagers, but it's pretty hard to command a room, especially if you're, you know, skinny and little. Like, I look, when I started, I was 24, but I looked like I was younger. If I had started at 14, I, there's no way I could command a room, I think. Anything, my, my point to this whole story is Jordan was friends with both of them, and he said that Chappelle said once about Attell, he said, the problem with Dave Attell is he's mastered the six joke forms or whatever, the six oh, jokes. Oh, heard, yeah. And he's spending his life searching for the seventh, mm. and it doesn't exist. He's not going to find it. Whatever, something like that. And Jordan goes to Attell, and then he says, um, hey, Chappelle said you're, you're like, you know, you've mastered the six, and you're... you're spending your life searching for the seventh, and you'll never find it. And Attell goes, yeah, that's right, and I've mastered the two the black guys do, too. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Which at that time was very yeah, funny, course, the of idea course. of, you know, of yeah, yeah. I know that's a long setup for a story, but, <laughs> but maybe it gives a glimpse into how serious we all take this, and seeing yeah. Albert talking to Milton Berle, it's like, it's, it's important to us, it's serious, you know, it's like art, for lack of a better term. No question, okay. We're, we're getting ready to wrap up, but Ian, I have a question for you. You, when you started, you, the alternative scene had already been around mm -hmm. for over a decade. Did you? Was it a? Was there a division in Chicago where you? I assume that's where you started, Chicago, right? Yes. Yeah. Was there a division like, oh, these are the alt comics? They're doing this crazy little club here. And then there's zanies, and those are the regular comics. How did it work? To some extent, uh, Chicago is unique, to me at least, in that it's not uh, L.A. or New York, but it's still a big enough city that it has a really thriving scene. It's a, a big scene with great clubs, great uh, alt shows. Um, but the divide between a club comic and an alt comic, while it still existed, um, it wasn't as prevalent. Did places like Luna Lounge pay? I'm curious. No, I don't think so. Maybe you got like ten bucks. I, but right. Yeah. But then the clubs would pay, right? A yes, little, a little bit, a little right. bit, but Not, poorly. I mean, now yeah. you weren't like yeah. rich, but you would uh, more consistently. I think make so, a and it depended. Like uh, at the comedy, s at the uh, comic strip, what I would do late night. It was called. Yeah. You would get five dollars, which is worse than getting nothing. So you'd <laughs> sign the clipboard, <laughs> and they give you a five dollar yeah, bill. You know yeah. what I mean? It's just kind of worse. Totally. Than totally. Um, 
So in Chicago, yeah, like you, you might get a couple bucks. You're mostly getting drink tickets. But the idea of doing a weekend at a club meant a couple hundred bucks, which was basically a million dollars, you know? Right. Yeah. And uh, that, that was definitely a divide. So you wanted to be able to play the clubs, but you also were mostly doing um, open mics, which just in general would fit into the alternative category. And then the shows would be, there, there are shows still, Comedians You Should Know in Chicago, I will say is one of the best independently produced shows in the country. It's unreal. They have a, an incredible relationship with the bar so that they have their own menus. It is sold out every week. People record albums there. And it's just, it's a room in a bar. It is not a club. There is not a minimum. You do have to pay for the ticket, but every like it is it's sold out. It's just crazy, and it's all independently produced. So when I came into it, that's what yeah. alternative had evolved into was like this is almost a functioning club on itself, one night a week, right. produced by comics for comics strictly. So those skills were also a big part of it. Uh, the Lincoln Lodge is another incredible example. It's an institution. Generations of comedians have have come out of that. Uh, in Chicago, and again, it's it's an independently produced room, but it feels like something much bigger. And can I just add something? Because we're we're using the term alternative, and I, it probably means different things to different people from different cities and in different eras. But from my when I came up, and what you were talking about, Wayne, with what you were hearing in New York, when I started getting access to stage time, which was in those alternative rooms, right. um, the kinds of things people were doing. So in the clubs, it would be um, lots of white guys which is still true everywhere, I think. And then it would be, you know, a guy, this next guy, and they bring you up, and you do your thing, and take the mic out of the stand, like I said, and, right? And it's just whatever. Noth I never saw people do anything other than that, which was either stories or jokes or their bits, maybe a little crowd work. You go to Luna Lounge at that time, Rafifi later, which was a bar uh, in the East Village. Um, there's a place called B3, it was in a basement, this bar, you know, just those kinds of places. And at Luna Lounge, I remember it was a whole kind of new world because people would do characters. They might have a little bit of costuming or props. The hosts started to, they would try to have a theme for the night. Right. They would do weird things like, um, and people would just really play around with it. Audience plants became a really big deal, <laughs> a la Andy Kaufman on that improv right. anniversary special where you have your friend in the audience heckle you. But it's a whole it's a whole scene that you're doing. But that I mean, was it Zamuda. Was, Zamuda was Zamuda did that famous yeah. yeah, yeah so this yeah. was kind of people were doing this. There was a stretch of this I remember, and the first couple of people who did it, it worked, because <laughs> the crowd was like, holy shit. Right. And then later you're like, oh my god, he got me. I didn't know they were friends. But after a while you're like, oh here we go. Audience, it became kind of standard. Yeah. But people, there's things I remember that I just loved. Like Nick Swartzen did a thing once. We're at Luna Lounge before the show. He's going around the bar asking people, friends, he's like, will you come on stage for my bit? Will you come on stage for my bit? So then they introduced Nick, Nick's five-minute set or ten minutes or whatever it was. Um, they got introduced. I can't remember the name, but it was an improv group. Yeah. But he, <laughs> had, he had like 60 people go on stage. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just a small stage. Yeah, right, right, right. So when they introduced the group, 60 people come <laughs> out, and the stage, they're just falling off the stage. Yeah. It's completely packed. And then he's like, okay, can we get a suggestion from the audience? <laughs> So we need a relationship. It's like doctor, patient. So then you know how improv groups will like, they'll yeah. huddle or something. Yeah, it was just, it was like them trying great. to do a scene with 60 people. It was just, <laughs> it was so funny. I think part of what was magical about it, and maybe it's still true now, but it doesn't feel like it because I'm in LA and people have, right. 
YouTube channels and they're taping their sets and stuff, was that there was no, you didn't see a clear path for the stuff you were doing. Like, you're not going to get famous off it. You're not going to get a deal. You're not going to, you know what I mean? You're not developing your character right. for your sitcom. It's just trying I to be hilarious to try. Yeah, yeah, just trying to be funny. Like, yeah. there was that, Sloven and Allen, who were a comedy team, yeah. they hosted once and they had a fish tank on stage, a, a big, whatever gallon, rectangular tank. And they hosted, they come out and they have these masks and stuff, and it's behind them. And then they introduced the first act, and then they just went behind the act and put their heads in the fish tank. <laughs> so they were just on stage behind every act with snorkels, just their heads oh, underwater, so with fish swimming around their faces and stuff, just waiting. And then the person would finish, and they get out of the tank and then come back. <laughs> Do a bit, and then they go back, and so it was like there was a vaudevillian aspect right, to it. Right, I think right. not knowing if you even if you didn't know what vaudeville was, people. One time they hosted from their apartment, they phoned it in, <laughs> so they were just speaker phones on stage, and they introduced love it, each, love it, love it. And then after each act finished, they would go to their apartment, and you'd hear them. They oh, do really? like a oh, postmortem, yeah, so yeah, they yeah. go across town. It's almost like doing panel after you do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but yeah. they had to go across the village to the guy's apartment, so. <laughs> It was that kind of stuff where you felt like you were part of something, mm -hmm. and there was an intimacy because nobody could tweet anything. It couldn't be filmed without holding up a, yeah, a yeah. camcorder, which you would get busted for. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. I don't know. It just felt, yeah, so I loved that it was alternative. You know, I'm saying I had a chip on my shoulder, but I liked it. Right. it. I felt like I found my people in a sense, you know? And then when I did the drawings and stuff, it fit naturally because I was just trying to do stuff for Luna Lounge. Yeah, I love it. Okay, we have some questions. Yeah, and that, that kind of ties in a little bit. This first question uh, is one from Twitter asked that it feels like the internet and social media has really changed um, comedy, specifically how people start. How do you think this has affected the feelings of insecurities or doubt that happen when you're beginning, and how is it different today than maybe, say, starting in the 60s? What a loser. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I started in the 40s, so I can't answer that question. I haven't started yet. Well, again, for me, I started starting in 97, which isn't that long ago, but it does. I certainly felt things change. And it, to me, the word intimacy is the one that just comes to mind. I just, it just feels less intimate. It feels much more public. And I heard Chris Rock say something once that I thought was really smart and made a lot of sense about comics who are edgier. I don't know if it speaks to insecurity, but I think it speaks to any comic or person who's speaking publicly, you know, he said something like, you know, traditionally, we, we use a show and an audience to try to find where the line is. But it's not like we always know before we go on stage. I'm not that edgy, but somebody like Chris, you know, I understand. They're trying to find it. But now you can't, e it's harder to even yeah, find it because you're yeah. being held accountable. Like you were trying a bit for the first time and someone had a phone and you did something that was over the line, but it's like, yeah, that wasn't a finished bit, you know, I'm trying to figure it out. Yeah, I'm, uh, if they're asking about starting out and just like, does the idea of social media make them more nervous? My guess is that social media probably makes you think like, maybe I want to try that more likely. But in the end, like Dimitri was saying earlier, you're on stage in front of probably the worst crowds. So yeah. it, like you'll wait five hours at an open mic, and then you'll get four minutes, and there's only 10 people left 
No, that's an exaggerate. Four people left, and they're all comedians. And that's yeah. not, that is real. I'm not exaggerating. Four people left. They're comedians. They want to go. They're staying to be polite because they know that you waited for them. Yeah. But they're also kind of anxious because they want to go to bed. And that's your audience. And you don't know them yet because you're just starting out. But I think that, that there, there's always some version of that. So in the end, it's like. I did the laundromat in New York. Do you guys know about that show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I never did it. There was a there's show. One out here, there's one out here. There's oh, is that right? There was. Yeah, yeah. This was in probably 2000 around then. There was a show. Now again, because of that comedy bust in in the yeah. 90s, it was really hard to get stage time. The comedy clubs, especially on weeknights, were empty. It was just tiny crowds, really too many comedians, and not enough stage time. Which maybe is a perennial problem, but it was really hard to find places to get up. So I definitely paid. There would be rooms where you pay to. You know, everybody brings money. Put it in a hat or pay them, and then you put your names in a hat, and then you pick, and that's the order for the show. So the whole crowd is comics. And you're, if you're lucky, if you get picked in the first 20, then it's worth doing. But if you're like number 56, you're like, you just leave, and you just paid <laughs> six bucks to not perform. <laughs> like you made negative six. But anyway, one of the shows was in the laundromat, a King Laundry it was called, on 7th Avenue in New York, and it wasn't even an open mic, it was a book show. So you had to get booked on the laundromat in advance. <laughs> I go to the laundromat with Andrew Donnelly. If you guys know him, comic? Yeah. yeah. Of yeah. <laughs> it's like a city. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Andrew and I go and do the show, and I have a bad set. And sometimes it just gets to you, and I, I kind of stormed out. We were supposed to hang out, and I just, I just wanted to go home, and I was just going to take off. And he came out. He's like, whoa, what are you doing? I was like, ah, this is like the worst crowd, man. I just bombed. And he said... That wasn't a crowd. That was <laughs> there was a laundromat, and it, that's yeah. all it was. It was <laughs> there was a microphone and an amp, like a PA, and no seats or anything. It's just people doing their laundry. <laughs> and th that was the show, and and it was literally people just looking at you, like putting their clothes in. Most of them like confused, like what is this guy? What are you doing? What's happening? You know, and I got mad that they were a bad crowd. I took it personally. When you're first starting, you think that the worst thing that can happen is that the crowd will hate you, and you're not that lucky. The yeah. re it's really that they don't care. Yeah, that's what bombing is for the most part. Is like you just didn't it's get not them people to care. screaming you suck or something. no, not at all. Yeah. They they're just sitting there like, huh? Yeah, you know, or or just like whatever, you know. Like it, it's not an active you suck. It's much more ambivalence. You know, uh, can I say one more thing on that, which sure. is the social media thing, and yeah. it's probably just my how old I am, and that right. I'm—it's just not my generation. Right. Um, what I always don't like about it, even though I've learned more about the algorithms and the companies behind it and right. how they're making money and selling people's data, I, I understand more now. Yeah. But the whole comment culture thing—it's funny how, from the one hand, it's it's empowering people to engage and to have a say and to have their voice heard or seen Very or whatever. Well, yeah, the barrier to entry and all that stuff, it's more, it's democratized, as they use that word. I think if you're someone who's making content, which a lot of people are now, a lot, I mean, personally, I don't like the comment culture thing because it becomes part of the content, which maybe is the whole intention, mm -hmm. and I know it engages people more and stuff, but I love going to museums. I love art. And to me, it always feels like if I went to a museum and when I got there, <laughs> The lady said, oh, 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 here's, thanks for your ticket, um, you know, for your, here's your ticket, whatever. Oh, also, here's, here's some post-its and a marker. 
So please feel free, whatever you think of the paintings, please write it on the post-it and stick it on the wall under each painting. You know, we definitely want to hear what you think of, of these works. And the problem with that for me is that I, have, I want to go look at the paintings, but then I have to look at the fucking post-its under the painting. And I just, I don't want someone who thinks Picasso's a fag to be <laughs> part of my experience of looking at that painting. That's what I don't like about it, you know what I mean? And to me, that does seem like it would make you more insecure when you're starting out. And it would make it harder because some asshole has a comment on your joke that it's like, that's your opinion, great. I, it doesn't need to be part of my work. It's like if everyone in the laundromat had their own microphone. Yeah. <laughs> now that's a show. <laughs> that's, that's how we do it. All right, one last question here. This is from, I think, I th yeah, she's in the audience. Oh. Um, so how do each of you feel from a technical <laughs> standpoint? Who is the greatest stand-up comedian of all time? Picasso. <laughs> I don't have a greatest one. I don't know. To of me, all time? It's too subjective for Is me. That from it's from a technical standpoint. Did you, did you want to? Yeah. Right. Like a comics comic in a sense. I don't know. I don't, we were just talking back. You and I were talking back. So I will say that the comedian he that made me. me laugh the most, and it was for a very short period of time. Like, just so many ways to judge a comedian, like a whole career, right. like garlic, you know what I mean? And Outfits, just like, like yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah then <laughs> some, some comedians have like these peak periods and then they're like, become not funny or something. But I, when Sam Kennison hit, and I don't know if I was the right age for it, right. but I just, I just lost it. I just thought that was like, I couldn't believe comedy could be about that, could be presented like that. And I had seen Richard Pryor and Carlin and all, you know, I'd seen everybody. And, I was just like, wow, this is insane what he's doing for that short period of time. But that was, that's just who made me laugh. I don't know if he's the greatest. Yeah, for one thing that I love about comedy and that I think is so humbling about it is, and the kind of mindfuck of it is that it's so obviously so subjective what each of us thinks is funny. I have this joke that I used to do that never really works, but I like the joke. Right. And it was, um, I've been doing comedy a while and I still, I still don't really know what's funny until I, I have to really perform it, you know? And then the crowds kind of tell me. But my friend's really lucky, because he knows what's funny. He's not a comic, but I'll say something sometimes, and he'll go, now that's funny. <laughs> and I'm like, he's so lucky, he just knows. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and the thing is, what I'm trying to say is, before you do comedy, yeah. you are blessed with, with something, which is, when you say that's funny, Period. You think you're saying that's funny, period. What you don't know is you're saying that's funny, parentheses, to me. Right? That's what you're yeah, saying. Very so much. Real. I Scores. agree with that. Until you do comedy, then you realize that thing at the end of the sentence appears, and you're like, oh, shit, I never thought. I just thought I, yeah, I have a sense of humor. I just knew what's funny. Yes, everyone does. But what's weird is when you're trying to share or sell or give comedy to other people, whatever, perform it, now you're thinking of the end of the sentence is so important. That's funny to... The nursing home where I'm performing for the, you know what I mean? That's funny to the people at the yeah. benefit show. That's funny to Jewish people at this special gig for this fundraiser. That's funny to yeah. teenagers. That's funny to a black crowd. That's funny to my family. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's so interesting how humbling it is. And what I love about it is it's so subjective, but the moment that you're doing comedy is so objective. Hmm. It's so binary. It's like laughter, silence. <laughs> it's funny or it's not. You know what I mean? But it's made up of sub subjectivity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then historically, 
it's funny that it just, to me, invokes that exact issue. It's like, you know, Henny Youngman, Rodney Dangerfield, right. uh, Ellen DeGeneres, Jerry's, like, who, who is it for you, when, how, you know, what mood were you, I don't know, it's, it's, it seems like such an impossible thing to answer, but I like that it's impossible. It's right, that's, what, that's the great part of the question. Yeah. That said, objectively, it's Stewie from Family Guy. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I'm saying? It's so interesting. If you go to, you could go to a city, go to a club, and do two shows in one night, and on the first show, you do some new bit that you love, and it kills. And that crowd, they weren't lying to you. Like, the most right. honest thing in the world is an audience. Like, they're just, I've never encountered a dishonest audience who's like, let's play a trick on them. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody laugh at stuff you think is hilarious, you know? Like, they're honest. And that first show, you kill, and you're like, the joke's funny, I got it. Second show, it dies. Same city, same night, same room. It couldn't be more identical. And it's right. like, it's not funny at 10 o'clock. Interesting. <coughs> well, guys, two things. One, thank you for coming out to this. We're not quite done. We're not quite done. Two, I, we, Andrew and I have some news that I don't know if this is even big news. But uh, <laughs> You're pregnant. We are, we've been trying. We, are, uh, we got picked up for season two, whatever that means. For a podcast to be picked up. I want to thank my special guests right here, Ian Abramson and Dimitri Martin Thanks. and Jamie who runs this place. And is there anything thank else? Sammy in the back. And, uh, yeah. Thank you all for coming out. Thank you so much. The History of Stand-Up is hosted, written, and produced by Wayne Fetterman and me, Andrew Steven. The show is also produced by Jeff Umbro and Chris Boniello of The Podglomerate. You can find more of their podcasts at thepodglomerate.com. Some of the music in the episode is by Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more about this show, episodes, and extras at thehistoryofstandup.com, at Hist of Standup on Twitter, or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.